0: At UFC 270, something unprecedented took place. Heavyweight Champion Francis Ngannou, unhappy with his current deal, fought out his contract. It's the biggest story in the sport right now, with the outcome of his dispute with the UFC potentially altering MMA history. But just five years ago, what Ngannou is doing would have been essentially impossible due to a series of provisions that, in theory, could extend the term of a fighter's contract indefinitely. I'm free agent. I'm, uh, uh, you hear it right, I'm, I'm free agent. But something happened in 2017 that caused the UFC to suddenly start putting hard end dates on contracts, and that something is the antitrust lawsuit. Now, if you regularly watch our videos, you've surely heard mention of this legal action, but because litigation by nature takes a very long time, it's probably only been in the back of your mind. You have a vague idea of it, but maybe you're not quite sure what it means and what the implications are. Let's change that today. In the simplest of terms, the biggest MMA promotion in the world is being sued by a group of fighters for $5 billion. If you take nothing else away from this video, you at least understand the magnitude of the illegal action that's taking place. In 2014, a class action lawsuit was filed against the UFC, alleging an illegal scheme to suppress fighters' wages and unfairly eliminate competition. An attempt to dismiss the case by the UFC failed in 2015, and a Nevada court has verbally granted class status to the plaintiffs. Meaning the UFC is no longer being sued by the small group of former fighters who brought Forth the complaint, but by any and all fighters who qualify and choose to participate, some 1,200 athletes. The UFC is currently appealing the ruling and seeking a summary judgment, meaning they believe the case is so one-sided in their favor that a judge should make a ruling on the case immediately. If the UFC's efforts fail and a potential settlement can't be made, the ensuing trial and its outcome could flip the sport on its head and have far wider-reaching implications outside mixed martial arts than you could possibly imagine. I'm Tommy from MMA On Point, and this is why the UFC. UFC lawsuit could change MMA forever. I know this may come as a surprise to you, but I'm not a lawyer or an economics professor. I create cartoons that cuss a lot because it makes me laugh to hear bad words. He said a bad language word. So believe me when I say I'm not an expert here, but I have put in the hours to, as best as a layperson can, understand what is going on in this case, and I'm going to present it to you in such a way that hopefully makes it as digestible and entertaining as possible. That said, no point in dipping our toes, let's just dive right into the deep end and talk first about the fighter's complaint. Kong Lee, Nate Quarry, John Fitch, Brandon Vera, Javier Vasquez, and Kyle Kingsbury filed a lawsuit against Zufa LLC, the UFC's parent company, alleging that the promotion had violated 15 U.S. Code Section 2 of the Sherman Act. What the hell is that? Well, in its most basic form, Section 2 says you're not allowed to monopolize or attempt to monopolize trade or commerce. Monopoly being the game you never finish with your friends, because fuck you, Max, for buying Boardwalk when I already had Park Place. But in economics, it's the near-total control of a given market, meaning you are essentially the only viable seller of a particular thing, in this case, elite-level MMA. The fighters are claiming the UFC has an 80-90% to 90% share of all top-tier mixed martial arts. Now, monopolizing a market in an of itself is not illegal. In order for it to be a problem, there needs to be what is known as anti-competitive conduct in addition, which is what the fighters are alleging took place. They claim that through the UFC's monopoly power, as well as anti-competitive practices, they have created an illegal monopsony. What is monopsony besides how a three-year-old might try to pronounce monopoly? It's the mirror to monopoly. So instead of a single seller for a given market, monopsony means there is a single buyer. In the context of this case, what is being bought is illegal level MMA talent. So essentially what the lawsuit is alleging is that the UFC has, through shady practices, unfairly bought up nearly all the best fighters in the world and kept their wages and money making potential lower than it would be in a competitive market that doesn't exist because they bought up all the best fighters. Their example of more competitive sports markets have been leagues like the NFL and NBA, where athletes receive around 50% of revenue, whereas in the UFC, it hovers around 20. As such, they are seeking damages to the tune of an estimated $800 $800 million to $1.6 billion. Where does the $5 billion number come from in the intro? The payouts in antitrust suits are tripled as a deterrent. Antitrust is just the word used for monopoly cases by the way, so that $1.6 would turn into a 4.8. should they win. That money wouldn't be split between those six fighters who brought the lawsuit forward though because they filed it as a class action meaning it applies to anyone who is quote similarly situated, more specifically all fighters who competed in the UFC from December 16th 2010 to June 20th, 2017. There was a second smaller and separate element to this case regarding the UFC and the right to the fighters likenesses, but it was not granted class certification by the court, which means that part of the suit is essentially dead in the water and we won't be discussing it. An interesting side note to that decision, Nate Quarry, one of the lawsuit's initial filers and one of its most outspoken supporters is technically no longer a member as his final UFC bout took place in March, 2010. And so he is ineligible for class status. Now that we understand what the fighters are accusing the UFC of doing, let's take a look at the case they're presenting to try and prove it. The core of the fighters' argument for anti-competitive behavior by the UFC as they see it has three key tenets, contracts, coercion, and acquisitions. As it relates to the UFC's contracts, the fighters posited that Zufa's long-term exclusivity clauses limit the mobility of the athletes and prevent or substantially delay free agency. The most basic example being if you are currently fighting for the UFC, you cannot fight for another promotion. There is also the right to match clause, which gives the UFC the ability to match any offers made to the fighter by other promotions once their contract with the UFC has expired for about a year. An example of this in the real world was when the UFC reacquired Gilbert Melendez after he made a deal with Bellator in 2014. From that example, the now infamous we gotta keep taking their fucking oxygen till they tap out text message exchange between Dana White and Lorenzo Fertitta emerged. Another clause is known as exclusive negotiation. This means for a period of three months typically, a fighter is not allowed to negotiate with any other promoter, but the UFC following the ending of their contract. There are extensions that can also be made to the terms of a fighter's contract based on injury or retirement. Then there's the Champion's Clause, which gives Zufa the right to extend a fighter's contract at the end of their deal for up to a year or three fights if they are a champion. This clause famously came up when BJ Penn defeated Matt Hughes for the welterweight title at UFC 46 after his contract had expired and he'd signed a deal with one Zupa didn't pursue it, though. They just stripped Penn. It's the same thing going on with Francis Ngannou, who just fought out his eight obligated fights, but he's still under contract due to the extensions. The difference being, as John Nash of Bloody Elbow has discovered, that since the filing of the antitrust suit, the UFC has added a sunset clause to their contracts that supersedes the champion's clause. So already the lawsuit is making an impact for the fighters. The second tenet of the plaintiff's case is what they call coercion. Their argument being that Zufa uses its market dominance to essentially force fighters to re-sign their contracts perpetually. The suit cites practices such as the UFC's renegotiating a fighter's contract before it expires to prevent them from even testing free agency and controlling them through, quote, moving fighters to unfavorable placement on the fight card for an event, i.e. placing them on the prelims against a tough competitor if they refuse a fight-slash-contract offer or are planning on leaving for free agency. Something similar happened to Nick Diaz in his first run with the UFC controlling the time of a bout. Since fighters only get paid when they fight, the UFC could potentially wait as long as possible on the contract to offer another bout, essentially shelving them with no recourse. Delaying the time until a fighter can sign with a new promotion. We just mentioned that clause. Three months can be a long time without a paycheck. And depriving fighters of title opportunities unless they sign new deals. Nate Diaz, a notable example of a fighter re-upping right before a title bout. That eight-fight contract famously a point of contention between himself in the UFC for years. All these practices, the plaintiffs claim, are designed to coerce the fighters into resigning with the UFC. The third and final tenet of the fighters' case is the UFC's acquisitions of other major promotions. Through the first two practices, long-term contracts and coercion, the suit alleges that the UFC effectively starved the market, forcing their competitors out of business or to be purchased by Zufa, citing the WEC, Strikeforce, and Pride as examples of the promotion swallowing up its competition and locking their elite level. Talent into long term contracts so that no other competitors could emerge or would be viable. There's a ton of really interesting, direct, and circumstantial evidence that the fighters have presented to bolster their case. Far too much to get into here, but if you understand the basics of what they're alleging as we just presented it, you essentially understand their entire argument. Their claim is that the UFC takes all these anti competitive actions to unfairly keep fighter pay down, to keep fighters without other viable options for other promotions, and to dominate the market for mixed martial arts. But what about? the other side surely the ufc isn't sitting back and saying yep you got us here's five billion dollars we'll see you guys around as you can imagine zufa doesn't feel as if any of what they do is anti-competitive they have cited the fact that fighters wages in the promotion increased over the time period the suit is focused on and that all the mma promoters who testified say that they were able to sign elite talent traditionally in a monopsony there should be a shortage in the market and the ufc is arguing that fans are not exactly starved of top tier mixed martial arts if they have dominated the sports so thoroughly, why did the UFC lose 70 fighters to Bellator over a five-year period? And if Bellator is such a bad promotion, why did the UFC sign 72 of their fighters during that same time? Zufa brought an expert forward to do an analysis of their contracts who concluded that 90.8% of the 2000-plus he reviewed were less than 2.5 years long, far shorter exclusive deals on average than the big four sports, NBA, NFL, MLB, and NHL. Again, this is just some of what is being discussed. I couldn't possibly tell you every argument being made in a video that isn't six and a half hours long. The fighters have counters for all those arguments I just presented as well. We're not going to be able to go through each and every detail of this case, nor would I be adequately able to present that information to you. At the core of this thing, the fighters believe the UFC has broken antitrust laws to unfairly put a stranglehold on the MMA market for top level talent driving down wages. And the UFC believes there is so little evidence to support an antitrust case, this entire thing should be thrown out, that they only helped the sport and fighters to grow their success simply indicative of what an amazing job they've done even if we were lawyers there's simply no way to know how this is going to go with the incomplete information we currently have there are even redacted portions of the official case documents that could potentially be incredibly persuasive but we don't have access to them the jury is literally still out on how this case ultimately goes down actually they've not even assembled the jury yet but that's what I want to talk about next where this case is going and the broader implications it's going to have on the sport and US antitrust law first of of all, and not to confuse you too much, there is now a second lawsuit that was filed last year. Yes, a second antitrust suit. I promise though, it's not that complicating. It's actually the same legal team, same complaint essentially, the difference being it covers a different time period. The first suit ends at 2017, the new one starts there and goes through to today. So it's essentially taking on the new management from Endeavor. At current, the UFC has filed to dismiss this second case, so that's where that one is at. Interestingly, the plaintiffs, if it's not dismissed and get certified, want the two cases tried back-to-back separately, not at the same time or combined. Whereas the UFC is going to argue that it should all be one big lawsuit, and the reason it appears they are pushing so hard for that is because they want to be able to include the years from 2017 to now as part of the case because they feel it would overall lend to their chances, since they've made changes because of the first lawsuit. So they could point to those if the case went to trial or in a summary judgment request. We're a very long way from knowing more about what will happen with the second case, so let's just focus now on what's going to happen with the one we've been discussing. I mentioned briefly in the intro that the UFC has filed an appeal on the class certification and asked for a summary judgment. Those are the next two major milestones in this case, but we are a long way from either of those issues being resolved. For one, the certification isn't official yet, it was only made verbally, so we have to wait for that to happen, then we have to wait for the appeals process which could take a considerable amount of time, potentially years. Once that is finally resolved, they can move on to the summary judgment request. If the fighters lose class status, that is essentially the end, and if there is a summary judgment as the UFC requested, then that is absolutely the end. If things go beyond those two steps, however, the potential for a settlement could emerge, and historically appears to be the most likely outcome at that point. As it turns out, there aren't a ton of antitrust cases, especially as it relates to monopsony, that ever get to the trial phase. What a a settlement might look like is yet unknown. It would certainly be a smaller number than $5 billion, but it would absolutely be substantial and could include provisions about fighters' contracts and pay. If a settlement is not reached, then Connolly et al v. Zufa LLC will literally be one for the history books. See, there have been plenty of court rulings as it relates to monopolies, but not issues of monopsony. In fact, there are hardly any cases at all that have received any kind of judgment regarding a buyer instead of a seller that either side could use as precedent In court, The biggest reason, and what will be one of the major hurdles for the fighters, is that traditionally, antitrust suits have focused on consumer welfare, meaning it is the end-user, or in this case, the fans, that matter. They are the ones consuming the product, and if they are not being harmed, then that has historically been used to argue that the practices in question are not unfair. So antitrust law has not traditionally been utilized to resolve issues workers might have, and consumer welfare has consistently been cited as the reason for the conclusion of, or lack of investigation by the doj and ftc into monopsony complaints if the end user is happy then historically these cases fall apart so if this were to go to trial the judgment would truly be unprecedented and a major court decision that would and could affect countless other future cases in the united states how's that for stakes for an example of the end user completely derailing one of these attempts to protect workers look at the 2019 ruling that was made about college football as it relates to the athletes compensation something that was clearly clearly a massive issue at the time. The NCAA was able to justify their behavior by explaining that the fans really appreciate that the athletes are amateurs and not professionals. That weak argument was enough for a judge to rule in their favor. Now, pretty famously, the NCAA has changed this policy recently, but not because of any antitrust suit, but because several states were on the verge of passing into law bills that would challenge the NCAA's authority on the matter. So rather than face regulation, they chose to make the changes themselves. Something very similarly happened happened with the video game industry in 1993 when Congress held hearings about violence in video games? Rather than let politicians determine their fates, industry leaders on Capitol Hill said they would self-regulate, and that's how the ESRB rating system was born. It's very possible that should it look like a law is going on the books against the UFC in the future, a similar self-regulating might occur. As we've pointed out about the Nganu situation, they have clearly been making changes because of the pressure from this antitrust suit. But what will change mean? How will this impact mixed martial arts. Well, you don't need me to tell you that if the UFC had to pay fighters $5 billion, there's a good chance they'd have to reconsider some things. One of the documents obtained by the plaintiffs and presented in court showed that inflation in fighter compensation was a major concern for investors. So even if there was no major cash payout, but the UFC was forced to increase fighter pay or restructure contracts, it would still be an incredible blow to the promotion as they do business right now, and could be a major windfall for the fighters as well as the UFC's competitors. It would essentially bust the market for fighters wide open, and with the legal precedent of the case, future promotions would be forced to fall in line with the ruling. Essentially, no promotion could exist in the future as the current UFC does today. That's how major this case is. You're talking about the fundamentals of how this sport is run, changing forever. This lawsuit is not the only major potentially sport-changing concern for the UFC at current, though. An attempt at extending the Ali Act, a federal law that restructured boxing, into mixed martial arts gained a serious push in 2016 by Republican House member Mark Wayne Mullen, who introduced a bill on the matter to Congress that was later dashed before a vote. But there will likely be more efforts to resurrect that bill, which would in so many ways change MMA that another video would need to be dedicated to it entirely. There's also a number of groups who have recently tried to organize the fighters into unions or associations to combat many of the areas of complaint brought by the antitrust lawsuit. It is undeniable that there's a bigger and more public push than ever by fighters to gain leverage in their relationship with the UFC, and this lawsuit, which has gotten further along than any other efforts before or currently ongoing, could completely redefine the sport. This lawsuit going to a decision on the judges' scorecards would be without question the biggest single moment in the history of the business of mixed martial arts, regardless of the outcome. Hope you enjoyed our breakdown of the lawsuit and hopefully you understand it a bit better now. If you want to know a whole lot more and do a deeper dive, I strongly suggest looking into the work of guys like John Nash and Paul Gift at Bloody Elbow and Forbes, who have done an amazing job covering all the happenings with these cases. Huge shout out to Max Randall for editing this video together. Follow him on Twitter at Max underscore Randall. Thanks for watching, please give us a like and subscribe, we've got three new videos or more for you every single week. Let us know what you thought of the video in the comments below, follow On Point MMA on Twitter, and have yourself a wonderful day.